Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Today, we're joined by Kevin Erdman, visiting fellow at Mercatus Center and author of the new book, Shut Out, How a Housing Shortage Caused the Great Recession and Crippled Our Economy. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I've read I've read uh, most of your book, and it's been a really, really interesting read. And I wanted to uh, kind of get into your book and sort of get your uh, get your take on the Great Recession, how it started, and and maybe how your views on the the Great Recession are different than the conventional wisdom. And then I want to kind of bring it back to where we are now. Uh, with the current housing markets. And uh, I know there's a lot of talk about there being a a housing shortage now. So I kind of want to bring it back to that. But just to get it started, tell us about your book. Yeah, well, effectively, my my book says what's happening now, what people are talking about now was was really just has been happening for the last 20 years. So in the the mid 2000s, during what we call the housing bubble, uh, it was actually a shortage of housing uh, that that was really the trigger. And, you know, I think when you think about the core of that, uh, you know, you think about a place like San Francisco or New York City today, uh, everybody understands and sees what's happening in those markets, that it's a lack of housing and that it's high rents in those cities that are causing stress. And it's households moving into those cities with high incomes and a high uh, income potentials driving up the rents that are causing the stress. And the locals there are angry about people that can afford to live there, right? They're not angry about people that can't afford to live there that are being tricked into it. If you think about it, uh, to think that the opposite was happening in 2005 is sort of a strange juxtaposition. And in fact, it was actually just the same thing happening in 2005 uh, in those cities. And I, I call them the closed access cities as New York City, Boston, LA, and San Francisco, basically, that really have a distinct signature from the rest of the country. And and the same pressures with a lack of housing in those cities ended up feeding the bubble that bled into Phoenix and Las Vegas and inland California and Florida. Uh, but really what was happening in those places wasn't that something changed in, in credit markets or something like that, those places were basically the landing point for this out-migration of hundreds of thousands of households that were forced out of these cities that have a housing shortage. And that shortage sort of spreads to those other cities. It's sort of a contagion. And as as fast as those cities were building, they just couldn't build fast enough to account for all these sort of housing refugees that were escaping these cities that are the, the source of the problem. The general view is that a bubble means you have a pretty big expansion of something and then it turns out to be unsustainable. Sustainable. How would a housing shortage cause a financial crisis? Yeah, so you know there are some things that are happening in in credit markets that that are a part of the story. But uh, the, some of the surprising things that I found when I first started looking at the data that led me down the path of developing this whole new view is that just looking at the national uh, survey data about the typical income of a homeowner, uh, you know, the typical education or or career of a homeowner, all those sort of indicators, you would expect to see all those things really changing during the boom. You would, we, we thought that there were a lot of mortgages going to unqualified borrowers, and that was the cause of the problem. 
what you find is, if anything, the opposite. Actually, the typical homeowner had higher incomes during that period, had more education, was more in like a profession or something instead of a of a more of a working class job. And that's because what actually was the core feature and what what was most of the real estate value was the real estate in these cities that that clearly have never had too many homes. And there was a bidding war to get into those cities. Uh, now, in the cities like Phoenix and Tampa and Las Vegas and, and Riverside, California, you could you could describe what happened there as a bubble. Those are cities that tend to have more elastic housing supply normally. So over the long term, you would expect a Phoenix or a Las Vegas uh, to accommodate uh, growth in their housing in their local housing markets. And at the time they were, uh, you know, the, in Phoenix, the building permit rates, you know, from the early 2000s to 2005 and six jumped, you know, something like 50%. And at the same time, prices jumped 60 or 70%. So it looks very convincingly like if you're just looking at Phoenix, it looks like a demand side event. The interesting detail that I've sort of pulled out of, of the story is that all that marginal demand at the peak was coming out of households that were moving out of high cost. California. So if you think about the city of Phoenix, it looks like it looks like an unsustainable bubble. And, and it, it is a bubble and there probably was eventually going to be some sort of pullback in Phoenix. But if you think about the cause of that bubble, if you think about it from the from the standpoint of individual households on the margin of what's happening, you know, there were households that needed houses in Phoenix. They were moving to Phoenix and they needed a roof over their head. They were demanding housing, not not necessarily as a speculation, although speculation became a part of it. They actually needed a place to live. And you think about that marginal household that's moving from L.A. that might be in a thousand square foot condo in L.A. that rents for three thousand a month. And they move to Phoenix and maybe they're building a three thousand square foot house in Phoenix. So it look again, it looks like expansion. It looks like overinvestment. But they're actually making a significant reduction in their housing expenses. They're probably going down to more like a fifteen hundred dollar a month rental value in that move. So that their explicit reason for making that move is to make a severe change in their in their life, you know, uh, in terms of their life cycle, in terms of their budget decisions to reduce housing expenses as a portion of their budget. Now, it just so happens in Phoenix that makes it that turns it into a bubble, but it's sort of because Phoenix is becoming an exurb of LA at that. Point. So, at what point then does this the the Great Recession happen and the and the bubble bursts? What's the link? What's the what's the spark that caused that to happen? I end up attributing it to to this mistaken cause. It, it was so viscerally, we all had this sense of excess, right? That there were too many of everything. That there was, you know, that there were too many homes. So. So it starts out as sort of a, a monetary uh, process. It sort of starts out that it's sort of a snowball effect. And by early 2006, uh, the, the little tiny snowball is just these marginal decisions that the Federal Reserve is making. You know, so Ben Bernanke's first meeting as as the chair in 2006 in his memoir, he talks about how they came away from that meeting feeling good about what they'd been doing because they started raising interest rates in mid 2004, and by you know they had basically flattened the yield curve. They basically raised short term rates to the level of long term rates by the end of 2005, and they're continuing to raise rates at that point, and they see a decline in residential 
residential investments and then housing starts starting to happen in early 2006. And they see that as positive. They see that as a return to normalcy. In fact, it, you know, in their press releases for some time after that, they refer specifically to the housing market as a correction, uh, which, you know, I, to me, that, that sort of phraseology, correct, you know, really says a lot about how they viewed what was happening in the market, how the nation viewed what was happening in the market. And, and you take that, just that little, you know, that that little error of of understanding that here this major part of the economy is actually in in a shortage mode it, we're actually trying to regain you know make up for the lack of housing in well located you know in places where there there's income opportunities and the only way we can make up for that is building houses in all the other places and that's basically the you know what we were trying to do in the in the mid 2000s so to make the mistake of seeing that happening and to call it a glut and to actually reduce real investment as a policy goal. You know, that little snowball, you know, f- for a year and a half, that snowball's rolling along and, and and the whole thing is sort of reversible during that period of time. And you can just imagine as you continue to ratchet up, as you continue to make policy policy decisions based on the other, the wrong understanding that everything that happens just shows how much excess there was, that shows how much irrationality there was. And you just keep ratcheting up those policy decisions. Eventually that snowball becomes an avalanche. So effectively, that has, is what had happened by late 2008. So that early period, I basically attribute to a monetary policy that, you know, the irony is they were doing the best they could. The, if anything, the public was clamoring for tighter policy. The public was convinced that the Fed was being too accommodative. And especially you see that in late 2008 with the bailouts, you know, the, the critiques about the bailouts and everything, which at that point, to me, the bailouts are a product of this two plus years of tightening screws that didn't need to be tightened. And in fact, one of the interesting things that's happening in that 2006 and 2007 period is they're they're afraid of inflation. Now, commodity prices were part of the reason that inflation was high, but ironically, part of the reason inflation was high is because as soon as they triggered this decline in in residential investment, rent inflation shot through the roof because we reinvigorated this longstanding shortage of housing. So rent inflation, which is mostly just the estimated rental value of homeowners that doesn't even involve a cash transaction, is a large part of the puzzle of why the Fed's is afraid of inflation in 2007 and 2008. So once we get to 2008, the Fed is finally, this has all been tightened up long enough that the Fed starts to truly accommodate. Finally, uh, with QE1 at the beginning of 2009, for the first time in a couple of years, they actually start doing normal monetary policy, which is be buying treasuries. They actually hadn't been buying very many treasuries uh, during the two years previous to that. They were lowering interest rates, but effectively they were just following the natural rate down and they weren't actually buying any treasuries. So they start to accommodate and the, the broader economy starts to uh, starts to level out and, and recover by early 2009. And this is where the credit part of the story kicks in because in September 2008, Fannie and Freddie are taken over by the by the federal government in conservatorship. You know, as I mentioned before, it, in terms of borrower quality, in terms of borrower characteristics, there there was a surprising surprisingly small amount of change during the bubble. Uh, if there was any change in mortgage lending, it was more in terms of the, of the terms of loans and the way that the loans are packaged. 
But surprisingly, with all the talk of liar loans and all that other, uh, you know, uh, sort of stuff that we saw happening, surprisingly, the actual borrowers didn't seem in aggregate to be uh, of a lower quality. But once the once Fannie and Freddie are taken into conservatorship, uh, you know, the average FICO score over the course of 2008 of a, of a mortgage borrower jumps from like 710 to like 750 or 760, which is just, I mean, it had never, it had never moved more than a few points before that at any time since FICO scores have been used. And so this is a tremendous shift in lending standards. We effectively stopped lending to the bottom half of the market. And then what you see in every city across the country in this post-2008 period is the bottom half of the market just gets clobbered, loses value 10 or 20% or more compared to the top end of the market that's not so credit constrained. And that happens whether you're in New York City and San Francisco or Dallas and Omaha. It doesn't matter if you had a, a bubble or not a bubble in your general uh, city's housing market, the bottom end just gets wiped out in this. So effectively what we did is we had sort of localized bubbles and those sort of popped in 2007 and 2008. And then we imposed a second, even worse collapse that was more of a class-based collapse based on who who qualifies now through the FHFA or, or the Dodd-Frank and, and the CFPB standards, who qualifies to be an owner now. And if your neighborhood doesn't have a lot of those families, then you actually had a second collapse that sort of happened uh, without anybody noticing in that 2009 to 2012 period. And that's actually when most of the working class foreclosures and defaults happen is after the second wave destroys home values in those neighborhoods. Right. Well, I, you know, I like beating up on bankers. And I think that the the common narrative is that the, the bankers were engaging in predatory lending, uh, lending to people on terms, you know, un, you know, on uh, unrealistic terms, putting too many people in homes, uh, and that's what caused the bubble. But it sounds to me that that narrative doesn't. Your research doesn't back that narrative. But what you are seem to be saying is that it's on the other side that there was this uh, after these small bubbles. Sort of, I think you described them as sort of common, ordinary bubbles that would happen every so often. Don't mean to put words in your mouth, but after these bubbles happened, uh, it was the bankers and and obviously the Fed that reduced the credit and uh, reduced the extension of credit. And that's actually where sort of the market fell out. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I think there's three distinct phases. I think that there's the subprime panic that happens in the summer of 2007. And so that you, you tend to see some prices start to decline mainly in those closed access cities and the contagion cities I was talking about earlier. Then you see then you see a wave of you know through when when uh, Fannie and Freddie are taken over in 2008 you then you see a wave that really affects the bottom end in places like Texas and then that sort of levels out and then in mid 2010 that seems to coincide with the passage of Dodd Frank but also probably you know in that two, there there were some uh, first time home buyer uh, credits that that the federal government had in place in 2009 and 10 that that might have helped sort of keep markets those markets from collapsing for a little while but then those drop off at the same time Dodd Frank is passed, and then you see another drop off. But again, it's very it's across the country, and it's very specifically to the bottom end of the market where those low tier markets had never had any extra increase compared to the top tier. There was nothing to be made up for here. It was just a drop from from a comparable level to the t- 
to the top end. So we really weren't undoing anything. We were creating a new uh, collapse at the bottom. So, you know, I, to me, I think by the time you, at least by the time you get to the conservatorship, and the regulators from that point on, you know, I'm sure that the, there were some pro-cyclical lending issues going on among the bankers, but but there's nothing happening at the policy level that's encouraging a reversal of that. If anything, at the policy level, there was severe pressure to even cut back lending more. Well, and I think that a lot of conservatives and maybe libertarians have uh, taken comfort in blaming sort of Clinton era, you know, Community Reinvestment Act actions to try to expand home ownership and and blame the federal government for their actions. Do you, you know, as you're talking about your book, do you, how are you finding people, particularly people on the right, uh, responding? There's probably some comfort to them reaffirming their own ideology of how the, re- the recession happened. Do they? They uh, sort of cling to that, or are they open to uh, your interpretation? Yeah, it's been kind of interesting and fun to share this story with different groups because, in a lot of ways, you know, in a lot of ways, it's uh, the conclusion here is that you know you look at a at a place like Texas, for instance, and Texas did pretty well, right? Texas has fared about as well as you could fare through boot. They, you know, there wasn't so much of a of a boom there. There wasn't as much of a bust as there were in other places. There wasn't as much foreclosure rates. In, in Texas uh, were probably higher than normal uh, going into the uh, to the bubble and the bust, but there there really wasn't a spike in foreclosures during the bust like you had in in places like Phoenix and or you know or California. Uh, and so, in a lot of ways, the 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 lesson of that is if you have the proper supply policies in place, if you allow capital to be allocated, if you allow housing to expand, whatever's happening in credit markets, and there was an active subprime market in Texas during the bubble, whatever's happening there isn't going to cause a crisis event. Because to, to the extent that anything extra is happening, it's just adding supply, it's lowering rental expenses, it's actually helping the, the housing expenses of, of working class households. Uh, so that's one thing that I think sort of is... Uh, easy for for people on the right to you know to see um, and and also I think just in a general frame of mind you know looking at this just in terms of like thinking about capital how how capital interacts with consumers in an economy and the interesting thing about the housing market is that it really is like a pure form of capital like you build a house and that house is going to provide deferred consumption for years on end so you know so it's like a pure it's like a pure relationship relationship between capital and consumer without all the messy stuff involving employees and, and wages and all you know all these other things that make other markets messy and and when you can see this clear relationship in a place like San Francisco or, or New York City where capital is really obstructed it's really easy to see how allowing capital to flow you know allowing a market that you know where capital is free to be allocated to its highest use uh, like you have in a, in a in a housing market like Texas benefits every all consumers you know extremely and especially benefits working class consumers so in the cities where we've limited uh, housing construction where we've limited capital inflows uh, people are voting with their feet. Working class households are moving out of those cities by the hundreds of thousands, and they're moving to places like Texas where capital can flow. So in terms of thinking about free markets and the way that all works and the way it benefits working people, I think it, it's a real clarity that comes out of this. Now, it, you know, in terms of what sort of what right wing worries about uh, federal involvement in the housing market and those sort of things, uh, you know, I think there is a little bit of pushback here that comes from my findings because 
really what I find is that the idea that these that these housing subsidies were the, were causing an overconsumption in housing it has actually just been empirically overstated i think it, just at, at its base we actually there actually really wasn't a growth a relative growth in housing consumption during these periods what we have is is rent inflation coming from bidding up bidding access into these cities where housing is obstructed uh, but there really wasn't this like surge of of real consumption of housing in terms of like overbuilding or in terms of marginal households that shouldn't have been owners becoming owners uh, in hindsight, and, and as I said, when I found these things, I was as surprised as anybody is. And so I think we actually can be a little less concerned than we would have been about about things like the Community Reinvestment Act and those sorts of things. Now, there, there are governance issues. You know, there are things about those types of programs that are plausibly problematic. And there are things at a conceptual level that I would agree with a lot of people are, you know, are sort of bad forms of governance and sort of imposing these these sorts of things on Fannie and Freddie about, you know, loaning to, to uh, you know, for affordability and making loans to, to households that, you know, that are marginally down the, you know, down the distribution of who should get a mortgage. In terms of policies, in terms of plausible policies that are plausibly dangerous, I would agree that there, there are issues there. The surprise is they just don't seem to have been that much of an issue in terms of what happened. And in fact, I think that not having had much of a, an opinion about Fenny and Freddie going into this, I actually have come out of this seeing that as an institution for all its for all its pros and cons actually came through looking pretty good in terms of how the, that setup sort of helped to create a stability, you know, at, at least in terms of, of sort of backstopping the, you know, the market in mortgage-backed securities and, and in terms of having a standard of, of lending that you know that we could sort of fall back on and in the end a lot of the problems were coming from these new sorts of loans that had more system you know systemically uh, destabilizing you know factors that are sort of you know embedded in them so yeah I, th- I think it's a mixed bag but when I have introduced the topic to those audiences I've I've been pleased at the response they they seem to recognize that there's some discoveries here that are that are sort of thought provoking and challenging and, and that there's something here well and as a, uh, a free market advocate I at least even if even if you're you're not going to support my anger towards Bill Clinton and the Community Reinvestment Act I at least can glom on uh, to the idea that some of these problems are still governed Governmental, and maybe it's maybe I should be looking at the the city councils of San Francisco and and LA and such, and it's the zoning restrictions and such that maybe are part of the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there really is a, a structural governance issue, a, an overbearing nature of of local polities to to obstruct markets. That really is the you know definitely the core of the story. And, and there are you know there are issues with governance, and in fact, I think we've sort of gone toward fixing these in a, in, in a few ways. You know, with the recent tax changes, the, the mortgage tax deduction has been pulled back a little bit. So there certainly are, uh, in fact, what I would say is we should focus less on things like Fannie and Freddie. I mean, I think there are some interesting things we could do with Fannie and Freddie to, to make that system work as well as it, it can work. Uh, but I think there should be less focus on that because really this, the distortive qualities of that are really 
fairly minimal. You know, I know you said that we're, we're we're seeing similar conditions to you know years ago. Let's kind of bring it up to modern day. Based on your based on the work that you've done, what are your policy prescriptions, if any? What should we be doing differently to address housing issues and create some stability in housing? I would say I, I sort of make three categories. I would say uh, lend, build, tax, basically. So so the first thing we should do is you know uh, we need to sort of stop being afraid of success. You know, in, in effect, what was happening in 2005 was the economy was was in a successful re- expanding mode in the second best world that we have where we've capped access to the most uh, economically vibrant cities that are tapped into the global post-industrial economy. So we've created this, you know, this bidding war to get into those cities where all the gains go to the real estate owners who own, you know, it's sort of like a cartel. It's, it's like an OPEC of housing, right? Until we solve that problem, which is a really difficult problem to solve that has lots of local aspects, that's the that's the second that's the best we can do in a second best world. And you see, you know, very similar things happening in the UK and Canada and Australia. You know, a lot of the countries that are very similar to us have very similar housing markets to us, except they didn't have the foreclosure crisis. And prices in those other countries have continued rising up because they're all dealing with this problem that's sort of a product of our age, that that there's suddenly a demand for a new wave of urbanization that, that's a combination of, of these highly skilled workforces in tech and finance and trade that are aggregating in these cities. And then over the course of the 20th century, these cities have developed forms of governance that basically gives too much power to local residents to obstruct change in their area. And so, you know, it's an international problem. If you don't fix that problem, then any any sort of growth of any kind is going to inevitably lead to a bidding war to be part of the, you know, to be in those exclusive economic centers. So in a lot of ways, what the, what the bubble, the, what we call the housing bubble was doing was a lot, it was giving American households a, a way to uh, find opportunity in other places. It was giving them, you know, it was lowering their cost of living in, in places like Texas by lowering rents, by building more houses for them. And then it was, you know, it in a way it was actually accelerating this segregation by skill and income that is set in motion by these closed access cities. You know, if if there's only so many people that can get into San Francisco, then then there's going to be a process of the most productive people trying to get in, right? So in a lot of ways, the stresses were about sort of accelerating this unfortunate process. Um, but if that's the world we live in, then that's the process that's going to take place. So so what I would say is first, we just need to reattain the, the levels of lending, the, the, ty- the standard of lending that we had, I would say that existed any time from 1980 to 2005. I, I don't think there's that much difference in lending standards over that period of time. Let's allow working class and young households to enter the ho- home ownership market again and trigger uh, a revival in, in housing construction again across the country. So that now the second step of that is build, which is a, a lot harder problem because that because that involves these cities with a complex array of obstructions to new housing. And, and if you solve that problem, then it creates a whole host of new problems with, if, those, if those local real estate markets ever readjust to a new open form of governance. And, and so that's a real tough nut to crack, but that's definitely the important, you know, that, that's, that's the gateway to fully realizing the benefits of the post-industrial economic boom. 
Uh, and then third, as, as a more long-term approach, you know, again, talking about the uh, reducing the, the mortgage interest rate deduction and those sort of things. I'm sure there's a good case for the elimination of the mortgage interest deduction, but we probably will lose listeners if we, uh, if we sound like we're advocating for them to be paying higher taxes. Well, uh, I think we'll end it on that cheery note. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>